Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins. And Asai Calderon Muñiz. All right, we're back to the topic of sleep. We talked about sleep last week on kind of like how's it supposed to work, what's going on with the different stages. I'm going to tell you now, we're going to reference that a couple of times today. <laughs> and so if you haven't watched that episode, you may want to. Um, but today we're going to be talking about what happens when sleep goes wrong and like what are some effects of of what happens here. Um, we're also going to talk about uh, hormones and kind of how they play a role here and kind of how sleep like kind of like a biological approach to this um, and disease and and like effects on hormone levels. Um, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, like especially um, especially the last half is all going to be like just running through MCAT testable terms. Um, but there's some stuff in here that I think is useful for people to understand about sleep for about themselves because it will, uh, I have changed my sleep cycle as a response of learning about some of these things. Um, and I think that there's a good chance that students may want to pay attention to this, um, like how sleep can alter your ability to learn things um, and alter your biology. Um, like even if you're like not trying to learn things, you're just trying to like hit the gym more often, like sleep will change the effects of going to the gym. And so we're gonna talk about a lot of these things. I think it's super important, super relevant because everybody sleeps. Um, most people don't sleep enough, or at least most people I feel like in this realm yeah. <laughs> of going into medicine, um, people are like, I'll sleep when I'm a doctor one day. And then you get to be a doctor and you're like, nope, I'll sleep when I retire. And then you're like, okay. Um, so all of this stuff, hope this is stuff that is super interesting to me. And so hopefully you guys find it as interesting um, as I do. Yeah. And also what we're going to start talking about, the the exact connection with this to sleep may not be particularly testable, but we're actually going to talk about some hormones first that are related to sleep. The hormones themselves are testable. And so if we're talking about some of these hormones and you're thinking, ooh, I need a refresher, the endocrine system and the hormones released in your body will come up on the MCAT. So you're kind of getting a sneak preview at the endocrine system in this conversation about sleep and um, you know, the hormones that are involved in sleep and whatnot. But starting us off, we have the classic, the well-known, most, perhaps most influential hormone with sleep. Take a guess what it is. It's melatonin. <laughs> so there is a whole industry on sleep supplements. And one of the biggest ones that you'll see is melatonin. The reason for this is that in the brain, specifically the pineal gland, releases melatonin as a signal that, hey, it's time to go to sleep. Go, you know, the lights are turning off. And so your body is producing, your brain is producing more melatonin. It really is related to kind of the amount of light that is out and about. And if you think about it, this is, you know, last last episode, we talked about how the amount of light that we're receiving affects our circadian rhythm, affects when we're sleeping, when we're awake, and the and the melatonin that's produced in our bodies is plays a really, really big role with that. Um, and so that's, I would argue, perhaps the single most important sleep hormone. Yeah. There are other sleep hormones that 
or rather hormones that are affected by sleep and that their levels will change when you're sleeping. So this next one, antidiuretic hormone, which is produced in your pituitary, hopefully this will make sense, but its levels increase when you're sleeping. So if you think about what this hormone does, it brings water back from the urine into the body. And so it's antidiuretic. So it's going to stop the production of, or not stop the production, but it's going to limit and decrease the production of dilute urine, and it's going to produce more concentrated urine. So if you think about this, that means that you're not going to be urinating as much when you're sleeping, which is nice. Yeah. So this hormone increasing at night does us all a favor and helps us sleep a little bit better. And so it's one of those hormones that, yes, you need to know about it with respect to nephrology to the kidney, right? You will see the nephron on test day. It's something that gives students a lot of headache because of all the different parts of the nephron and the hormones that are involved. So if you're thinking, okay, antidiuretic hormone, wait, what's the other, what are the other hormones involved? This is something that you'll want to think about after this episode. Um, but there, it's a classic one that will hopefully, once you know what it does, make it clear why its levels increase while you're sleeping. Yeah. If there's any one hormone you need to connect to sleep, like you said, it's melatonin. Like that yep. is the like sleep hormone is what people think of it as. Um, I do want to mention... I do think it's probably useful for you to know that melatonin is made from serotonin, yes. which is yep. made from tryptophan. And <laughs> so like having not enough tryptophan in our body can affect serotonin and melatonin levels. Um, there's also some connection to uh, like it's easy to connect serotonin with melatonin because serotonin becomes melatonin through like a metabolic process that maybe sleep and depression um, like may have some links to them and obviously they do because, um, one of the main, uh, neurotransmitters involved in depression is serotonin and the main hormone involved in sleep is melatonin. Um, so those are things to kind of like keep in mind. Um, the antidiuretic hormone thing, I love that too, because like, not only is it like you don't want to pee while you're asleep, but every time you breathe out, you're losing water. Yeah. And when you go to sleep, you are going to be losing water for the next like eight-ish hours. It's good for your body to try to retain whatever water it can. And so that ADH helps keep that water in you and it makes you not have to pee. So it's a win-win. Um, I think people underestimate how much water we lose through breathing. I know the MCAT has asked about this. Um, they haven't asked about numbers, but just keeping in mind that you should be drinking more than you're peeing. Like it isn't just water goes in and water comes out as pee. Like a lot of the water comes out through breathing and through sweat. I think you can lose almost like a liter of water um, overnight. I think I read at some point, don't quote me on that. I need to do some more research. I probably should not have said that. Um, but I think, I think it's like one liter of water that you lose just through breathing. And so holding on to that water is important. Um, yeah. Super quick. Because you mentioned um, tryptophan, remember that amino acids, single highest yield science topic. Yeah. So no structure, no three-letter abbreviations, no one-letter abbreviation, no um, charge at physiological pH. Know that yeah. inside, outside, 
backward know your amino acids. The and and that's I think something just like innately in the back of my head. Anything that is even remotely connected to amino acids, <laughs> I have to bring it up because mm-hmm. the MCAT tests amino acids so much, and they are always testing those connections. So melatonin <laughs> made from serotonin, which is made from tryptophan, fits within that, and so that's something that is super testable. Um, now it, it's not just like ADH and melatonin, like tons of hormones are affected by sleep. Um, one that is particularly interesting um, to uh, people who are parents or uh, when people are growing or developing um, is growth hormone and um, testosterone um, as well. And so it turns out that when you l- are losing sleep or when you have interrupted sleep or just less sleep, you have less growth hormone and less testosterone um, in your body. Now, growth hormone obviously is like muscle development, but also like growing bones and things like that. So if somebody has their sleep interrupted a lot um, when they are going from age like 13 to, you know, like 15 or something like that, um, you're going to like expect to see some like less growth hormone. And so you might see like stunted growth um, or something along those lines. And so that's something that is super interesting, especially because teenagers famously don't get enough sleep. Um, We talked last week about how like as you age, your sleep cycle changes. Generally, teenagers, they tend to stay up a little bit later. Um, It seems like there might be some biological component to that, not just sociologic but um, school doesn't start any later for most um, <laughs> high school students. And so as a result, like most high schoolers are like have some level of sleep deprivation. Um, and that is affecting their biological like development and growth. Um, those of you who are going to the gym often as well note that like testosterone growth hormone for like developing muscles and things like that, like athletes, like sleep is important for that. Like your muscles will be smaller if you do not sleep. Um, and so it's something just like factoring all of that in. Um, keep in mind that like, I, I think a lot of people think sleep is just a mental thing. <laughs> like, no, like sleep might affect how tall you become or or how muscular you are. Um, and And those are things that I think a lot of people aren't making those connections. Yeah, I'm a very big proponent of high school starting later. It no longer directly affects me, but I think it's incredibly important because, you know, these these folks are the ones that are coming up after us, after you guys that are listening. And we want to make sure that the doctors, the engineers, the scientists, the people who are helping us do our grocery shopping at the at the store, that everyone's kind of at their best. Mm-hmm. And it's small things like, well, seemingly small things like that, that end up having a lot of influence in in society as a whole off that mini soapbox. So in addition to um, testosterone, there are other sex hormones that are related to sleep. And so two of those are estrogen and progesterone. And so these heavily influence the menstrual cycle, which is testable. So make sure that you've gone and studied that. And it, there's we were looking, and there's a lot of information out there about how these might influence um, sleep. And it seems like there might be, rather than just as a response to sleep, these may affect how we sleep. And so it seems that sleep quality 
um, may actually be worse during the premenstrual and the menstruation phases of um, a female cycle. And so that's, I don't know about y'all, but that, that was a little frustrating for me. I was like, dang it, we didn't need something else. <laughs> but um, it seems that prolactin is also sometimes called like a sleepy hormone because it can cause someone to be a little bit more somnolent, estrogen playing a role in how much and the quality of sleep someone gets. And so thinking about, you know, as someone is aging, we know that the folks that are older may not have as great quality sleep. They may also have less sleep. And if you think about it, that's just another, that could be in part a byproduct of these shifting hormones and the hormonal changes that happen with normal aging. And so we're not going to dive into detail on this because that is not relevant or not particularly relevant to today's topic. But if it's something that interests you, I encourage you to take a look. A lot of times we think about MCAT studying as, okay, just what I need to know for the MCAT. But it's okay to do a five-minute dive into something that interests you because that's a way to continue to stay motivated when you're studying for the MCAT. Yeah. Another another hormone to think about is oxytocin. So um, this is one of those hormones that people think of kind of as a, as a happy hormone when you're in social interactions can um, produce that kind of boost is also involved, and you do need to know this, in childbirth. So unlike most of the uh, regulatory mechanisms in our body, it has a positive feedback loop. And if you think about it, that should make sense because that's going to help with contractions of the uterus and getting the the infant out. <laughs> and so, you know, you want that to increase uh, during childbirth to be able to better I was going to use the word expel. Expel is not the right word, but make it easier um, to birth the the child. And so this is one of those hormones that um, is produced from the hypothalamus. You're, it's, it's going to peak maybe like midway through. And I think some of the estimates were about five hours of sleep. Um, I We had seen perhaps it may influence dreams, but that is something that might be Something you look up later, but not something that is particularly relevant here. But we wanted to mention these hormones because the hormones themselves and what they generally do are testable. So you've got to be a primer, but there's a lot here. Yeah. It's also just super interesting. Just yeah. like overall, like half of the people listening to this are women. Actually, over half if we, if we like, look at the I stats, which is awesome quarter. and makes me excited for medicine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so this is something to just be aware of and like uh, <laughs> menstrual cycles affect sleep, uh, postmenopausal, like sleep is affected. A lot of times you see insomnia with that. You could expect that maybe birth control, like this is something I haven't looked into, but I would expect that that would probably have an effect on sleep. It might make sleep better. It might make it worse. I don't know. I need to look into that. Um, their baseline. Yeah, or- exactly. Um, but also like... Uh, the level of adipose tissue, like the the more, uh, like if you have a lot of fat tissue, you produce more estrogen. And so that may also affect your sleep cycles and things like that. So um, super interesting, just looking at like kind of like real world effects. But all of these hormones are things you do need to know about. And just, I think it's important for students to realize, like like I mentioned before, that sleep is not just a mental thing. Well, sleep affects your overall biology. Um, and vice versa, right? And so having something out of whack 
may mess with your sleep, which may mess with a lot of other things. Um, I also specifically want to mention this because a lot of my focus on my like PhD work was on memory, um, which is obviously relevant to people who are studying. Um, <laughs> and so there is um, there are a bunch of people who have studied uh, sleep and memory and like the effects of like missing sleep and how memory is affected. Um, one of my uh, favorite studies was from a Dr. Matthew Walker, um, who was at Berkeley. Um, and looking at just kind of the effects of the hippo on the hippocampus and the effects on memory. Um, and he was able to do a bunch of studies looking at people who are, um, like who have lost sleep or have interrupted sleep. Um, they, they may have like the amount of stuff they learn may drop by 40%, um, like in terms of bringing in new information. So those of you who are studying hardcore and pulling like all nighters or even just like I'm only getting four hours of sleep. Note that the next day your learning is going to be less effective. And so you're going to stay up late to try to learn more and that's going to make it less effective. It's, it's another positive feedback loop. This one being a bad one um, where going through this as somebody who has done this, <laughs> I where Same. I was like pushing so hard and i feel like this is something that happens to everyone in medicine um because of just the way medicine is structured in the medical education with like residency and rotations and things like that like your sleep is going to be affected and that's going to make you less effective at learning which is frustrating um this is also another anecdotal thing um i think i've mentioned this before but every day for like the first three months of med school I took a nap every day and, and it wasn't because like I, I tell that to people and like, like when I told my mom, she's like, is it like, is it a lot easier than, than you thought? Like you can just take a nap every day. I'm like, no, my brain is fried and I'm like, I can't think straight and I like need a nap to just kind of like reset the brain. Um, and there actually are studies that show that like taking naps will make your memory better. Um, and so like, I do want to encourage people don't, don't, don't look at sleep as the enemy, like sleep and this, as somebody who has felt this way at times, like, I wish I could just study more. I wish I didn't have to sleep. No, sleep is helping you with that. And so don't, don't run away from it. Um, now that being said, don't sleep for 14 hours. So like every night instead of doing your homework. Um, but if you can do that, then you might actually want to talk to somebody who studies sleep because I think that might be very um, unusual for someone to be able to sleep 14 hours daily. Um, although there are days I've crashed and just had needed to catch up on that sleep debt. Yeah. Uh, a really kind of quick thought, and I have definitely mentioned this in a couple of podcasts in the past, but I think it's really helpful to understand how much sleep we need as individuals. We often hear seven, eight, nine hours, and we've talked about I actually don't know if we mentioned it last episode, but how often like an individual sleep cycle will be close-ish to an hour and a half, 90 minutes, give or take some. But everyone needs a slightly different amount of sleep. And so I encourage students, I encourage pretty much anyone in general that needs to figure out how much sleep they need. Choose a day where you don't have to set an alarm, where you can sleep however much you need to sleep. That might be a Saturday for most people. 
and note the time that you fall asleep. Note the time that you wake up. If you wake up at the time your alarm normally goes off, see if you can go back to sleep and then what time you naturally wake up and use that to think about, okay, how much sleep do I actually need? And it might be more than what you're getting. It might be about what you're getting. And I think that's helpful information to have because then you can build your schedule around that as much as possible and be more effective in your studying, be better at retaining the information like you're talking about, Phil, because it's so important and we leave it to the side. Uh, and so your your sleep needs might change with time, but it's useful to have a baseline while you're studying for the MCAT. Remember, this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And you want to develop solid and consistent and sustainable habits for when you transfer to medical school because we anticipate you getting into medical school and we also want to prepare you for that as well. Yeah. All right. Other things that you need to know about sleep that could theoretically come up on the MCAT. One of them is something that maybe you have actually experienced. And I know I definitely experienced them and it is so frustrating, but they're called hypnagogic hallucinations. So basically when we're falling asleep, we can have disturbances in our sensory experience. And so some people may actually see things. Some people may hear things. Some people like myself may have a sensation that they are falling and you kind of just wake, but not quite wake, but it's just that, oh, startle, I'm not actually falling before I go to sleep. But that can be really distressing for patients. And so if a patient comes to you one day and is saying, doc, it's just, it's weird. I see things when I'm falling asleep. It might be normal and letting them know, hey, people could actually experience this can be really reassuring. And it might be something that you experience and we're wondering about. But this is often normal, our body getting ready to fall asleep, as frustrating as it may be. Yeah. What makes it frustrating is very often you're like so close to falling asleep yes. and then you have this and your anxiety levels go up and it's like yes. your fight or flight kicks in. I'm like, oh, OK, now I'm super awake all of a sudden. Um, yeah, another term that the will MCAT, that the MCAT will occasionally bring up is something called a myoclonic jerk. So myo meaning muscle, right? So a myoclonic jerk is whenever your like arm or leg twitches and moves like as you're falling asleep. Um, anecdotally, like from myself, this happens. I don't have hypnagogic hallucinations, but I do have myoclonic jerks, um, especially when I am missing sleep like when i have a bit when i like don't have enough sleep going on like three or four nights in a row all of a sudden like i'm going to be kind of like weirdly like twitching in the middle of and like right as i'm going to sleep like having those little weird jerks um that's something that can also be a little bit startling um there is there are times when i've like accidentally like punched somebody and i'm like oh sorry i was falling asleep and uh my arm twitched and um that that doesn't that doesn't go well, especially if they were already asleep. And I just like, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of falling asleep and things that can go wrong, like punching a partner on accident, mm -hmm. uh, there are a collection of disorders that we've identified in the scientific community that relate to the act of falling asleep. And that can be problematic because they're disorders when someone is falling asleep. And so we call these dysomnias. These are going to be different than the ones that occur during sleep, which we'll talk about later, which are parasomnias. But perhaps one of the most well-known dysomnias 
I like to think of it as the equivalent of melatonin in how well known it is, is insomnia. And so I suspect a couple of y'all listening may yourselves struggle with insomnia. I actually have struggled with insomnia since young, young adolescence. Um, and insomnia can be a difficulty with either initiating or falling asleep or staying asleep. Some folks have difficulty with both. And it's something that affects a lot of individuals. And this is something that, yes, is MCAT testable, may apply to you. You probably know someone who has insomnia, and you will definitely come across patients who have insomnia. And so it's useful to know how to identify it. In terms of treatment, there are plenty of other, there are plenty of treatments and attempts at treatment which are beyond the scope of the MCAT. But really, it's understanding when it comes to these disorders that we're going to be talking about, what are they? And how are they different from others? So we have one that causes difficulty falling asleep. That's insomnia. We also have another that is the opposite end of the spectrum, where folks can't control it and they are spontaneously falling asleep. And it's not just during bedtime. It is in the middle of the day. And this causes a really, you can imagine, this causes a really big disruption in someone's sleep pattern, right? You're in the middle of the day and you start falling asleep. It can be dangerous because you imagine if you're driving and suddenly mm -hmm. falling asleep, it can cause problems. And so it's something that we want to be on the lookout for as future physicians. If a patient is describing this, especially if someone comes to you and they say, doc, I'm tired all the time. They could have insomnia if they have, they mentioned that they're, you know, napping and they're, they wake up and they think that they've been napping during the day. That could represent narcolepsy. Um, and so you want to think about how all of these also not just cause difficulty initiating sleep, but they ultimately affect the quality of sleep that someone is getting and how wakeful they are during the day. So it has a lot of implications. Yeah. And this is kind of a common thread with just dysomnias overall. Um, like, I, I really, I feel like I got really into etymology of language when I got into med school because it helped me because everything's in Latin and it's just like, like you have to figure out like, what does this mean? But so dis means like bad and somni means sleep. I feel like we've said, like you mentioned somnolent earlier and I mentioned a somnologist. And yeah. so somnologist is someone who studies sleep. Somnolent is something that makes you sleep. Um, and so dysomnia is bad sleep like there's something wrong with your sleep itself like Maybe. you cannot stay asleep or you're falling asleep when you shouldn't be falling asleep there's also sleep apnea which often like a lot of people get kind of confused with like why is sleep apnea dysomnia because um there's another class parasomnia which we'll talk about here in a minute but sleep apnea What's what's characterized this is like you're waking up like periodically throughout the night. So your sleep becomes hyper interrupted. Um, <laughs> and so that creates like you're not able to sit and sleep for a normal amount of time, um, kind of like narcolepsy and insomnia, where you're sleeping when you shouldn't or not being able to sleep when you should or sleeping is hyper interrupted. There's also circadian rhythm disorders um, where people uh, just are not able to fall asleep during the time when most people are falling asleep. Like maybe their circadian rhythm for some reason has become shifted um, where they're not able to go to sleep until like two or three in the morning or they're only really tired at like noon 
Um, and that kind of messes with the sleep. The, the problem is with the sleep itself. There's something wrong with the sleep. So that makes it a dysomnia, which is different than the next class of, of disorders we're going to talk about. I really quickly want to loop back to sleep apnea, just because if you get a passage on sleep apnea, they could talk about two different types of okay. sleep apnea. So there's central sleep apnea where the brain is not telling your body to breathe while you're sleeping, which is super problematic. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine how, you know, a, a regular machine to help someone op open someone's airways wouldn't be enough. Whereas you can also have obstructive sleep apnea, which is where there is some kind of mechanical blockage. So if you think about if, you know, you've you have large tonsils and maybe your tongue slides back, um, it can block your airway. Or when people gain weight and maybe they carry some of that weight around their neck, that can also cause some additional blockage. It's not a permanent blockage or you wouldn't be able to, to sleep at all. Um, right. Basically, people are also not just having their sleep interrupted, but their breathing specifically interrupted. And so you can imagine how that will also can cause problems and how that can interrupt someone's sleep and the quality of sleep. So if you were to get a passage on sleep apnea, again, keeping in mind that these passages are excerpts from actual research, actual papers, they could go either way. I think it's just helpful to know that that exists. But really yeah. understanding how sleep apnea differs from the other dysomnias is what you really need to focus on. Yeah, I do. I, I can't believe like the etymology of language just going like if you ever see A, <laughs> that means you can't like uh -huh. or no. Like so, um, for example, aphasia. You can't speak, speaking. speaking. So P-N-E is breathing. So they have like pneumonia is P-N-E, whatever. And so apnea is like no breathe um, for kind of like the etymology of that. I do want to mention that the peripheral sleep apnea, way more common. Yeah. Um, and that is very much tied to obesity um, because having extra adipose tissue in the neck and the neck and less muscle tone can cause the airway to kind of like collapse in a little bit, like as you're sleeping and you're not consciously like keeping that open. I honestly think it's underdiagnosed. Yeah. A lot of sleep snoring is actually could be one of the indicators. And so many people snore and you don't often you don't realize that you have sleep apnea. It's because someone else brings it up or someone is hospitalized and they notice that their oxygen drops. So I'm convinced that it is underdiagnosed. But yeah. We will continue with what is MCAT test. Of no, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, mm -hmm. And the problem is even the people who are diagnosed often. So the way to the one way to fix it is to lose yeah. weight and get in better shape. And like that can help. But mm -hmm. also is to wear the masks, as you mentioned, that are shoving air in and holding open those yeah. those um, airways. Those can be really obnoxious to wear as you're falling asleep, especially if you like to lay on your side or you toss and turn, you have like a hose going across and like a loud machine and this thing strapped on your face. Um, and a lot of people have trouble sleeping with that. Um, I will say that if you have sleep apnea, try to address it in whatever way is best. There's a lot of studies to show long-term health effects from just like not getting enough oxygen into yeah. your body and into your brain as you're sleeping. And obviously that's a problem. Absolutely. So we hinted at the parasomnias in earlier. 
And so unlike the dysomnias, which, like we mentioned, are issues with falling asleep, waking up, staying asleep, the parasomnias are things that happen during sleep that are often related to what we're physically doing, um, not exclusively, but they are often related to that. And so one of them is sleepwalking. So remember that our body tries to keep us still while we are sleeping, and it is not always successful at doing that. And so while we are sleeping, we can, and I'll get to that, we can have ourselves in a situation where we are physically getting up, walking. And so you may or may not have, if you've lived with other people, a family member, um, or maybe had roommates in college or even now, and you see someone maybe go to the kitchen and go do something, but you try and talk to them, they don't respond, and then they just go back. That would be an instance of sleepwalking. And in and of itself, that's not a red flag. It can happen every so often. If it's happening nightly, it can become dangerous because that person might leave the home, that person might do something dangerous. And so it's it's one of those things where you got to give it some thought. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I was in this situation where I went to the kitchen to get water then went to my brother's room and sat on the edge of his bed with the water. I didn't I didn't remember this, right? As when you're sleepwalking, you don't have memory of it. And he was saying it was just so weird. I was talking to you. And then he just left. And I was like, well, good thing I didn't drop anything. Good thing I didn't leave the house. Um, but sleepwalking is one of those parasomnias. And again, it's not an issue. If you notice, it's not an issue of falling asleep. It's not an issue of waking up while you're asleep. And it's not an issue of staying asleep or waking up at the end of your sleep. Yeah. So I always think like parasomnia means with sleep. And so like this is a problem not of your sleep, but this is a problem that occurs when you sleep. So your <laughs> sleep is fine. It's just something happens when you are sleeping. Yeah. Um, and so sleepwalking being a great example. That's really funny. I used to sleepwalk as well as a child. And my mom tells a story of me just sitting in the kitchen with the fridge open, I'm sitting on the floor with a gallon of milk and just crying about a man on a boat. And she's like, I don't oh. know what was going on with you last night. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> but this, uh, there, there is something to this. I know we've kind of like already mentioned this, but hormones play a role in this. Like sleepwalking is way more common in children than it is in adults. Um, so there is some biological ties to this, right? And like what's going on biologically, um, and kids' sleep cycles are different as well. Um, they tend to need more sleep. Um, but so it's not the only, sleepwalking is not the only parasomnia you need to know for the MCAT. Um, there's also night terrors. Um, so that's usually, so, so night terrors are kind of interesting because they tend to be more of a problem for everyone else in the house <laughs> than the person who has them. Um, so what happens in night terrors is somebody is like having a nightmare and they're like screaming and thrashing and yelling and like to everyone else, it sounds like they're dying, right? They're being murdered in their bedroom and you go in there and you you try to wake them up when they're going through this and it's really hard to wake them up yeah. and, and they're really out of it and like eventually like they kind of stop and go back to sleep. Um, and you should think back to the previous episode that we did with like sleep stages, Right. This this not like being very hard to wake up. Like what what stage does that connect to? And I realize that's a trick question because 
The answer is stage three or stage four or slow wave sleep, depending on how you look at that. Um, but like this is something that happens more often with that kind of like later stages or deeper stages of sleep. Note that usually these like the nightmares are not super like vivid and detailed. Mostly they're just like emotion, like fear or like anger or something like that. And there's usually not as much detail to them if you can wake them up and get the details of the dream um, because their brain isn't actually all that active. It's just this like strong emotional thing. Um, and I think that they've shown that there's a lot of activation of the amygdala, um, which has to do with fear and some other emotions um, in people who are having night terrors. Um, so there's also sleep paralysis, which is this is a, this actually usually occurs like as you're falling asleep or as you're waking up um, and you're paralyzed. And this is evidently terrifying yes. when it first happens where you're lying there and you cannot move, right? Like you're awake and you're paralyzed in your own body. Um, but you should be thinking about like what stage of sleep can we maybe connect this to? And note that we talked about this last week, but in REM sleep, your body is paralyzed. And so sleep paralysis, what's happening here is something's happening with that paralytic phase that's going like extending a little bit into when you're awake. And so all of a sudden, like you wake up and you can't move. Usually you wait a couple of seconds, like 10, 12 seconds, like you're fine after that. But there's this, this behavior of the, the paralysis of muscles, which is useful when you're dreaming about fighting a bear, as we mentioned, um, that you're not punching and kicking. But um, having that extend into your waking time can lose uh, yeah. sleep paralysis. Yes, it is scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we've those those are the types of sleep disorders that you need to know for the MCAT that are most likely to come up. There is, I know we each have one that we want to chat about. These next two are not going to be, are very unlikely to come up on the MCAT unless they are part of a passage. It's not content that you need to know, but it theoretically could be part of a passage that tests content that you do need to know. So the first one that I want to mention that I think is really interesting is REM behavior disorder. And so basically this is when someone is acting out their dreams. This is different than night terrors. Um, and so there there is some difference here, but it can actually be an early marker and can happen years before someone is diagnosed with Parkinson's. And so when I was doing my neurology rotation, and it wasn't quite a single rotation, it was throughout the year. Anyway, um, that was something that came up. And one of the questions that we would ask someone who was coming in for a potential diagnosis was asking their their partner if they lived with someone, hey, have you noticed that this person maybe in the last few years has been maybe moving more in their sleep and acting out during their sleep? And oftentimes you'll hear, yes, but it's something that the person themselves is usually not aware of. This is another one of those situations where if you think about the parasomnias, except for sleep paralysis, the patient themselves or the person themselves is often unaware of it. <laughs> And so it's one of those things that is useful to know for your future career, a question that should be in the back of your mind if there is concern about someone having one of these movement disorders. But just something that I think is interesting, especially as we get better at diagnosing patients with different disorders and in neurology and whatnot. And yeah, I think it's just, it's interesting. But again, the 
content itself, not testable, could theoretically get a passage on it. And then with something like this, they could totally ask you about REM sleep, right? They could ask you about the movement, you know, movement disorders as well. Remember that muscle contraction is testable on the MCAT. They could tie that in with Parkinson's. There are a lot of different ways that they could tie in other topics, other content that you do need to know. Yeah. Not to mention Parkinson's itself. is an Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Now, the one I have is like, I, I always have to talk about this when I talk about sleep because it is the single most interesting and terrifying disease that I learned <laughs> about in med school. Um, and that is fatal familial insomnia. So this is a, um, a disease caused by a mutation in a certain gene. It's the PRNP gene. Um, and this, like what happens here is all of a sudden, like one day, like you're, you start to suffer from insomnia and your sleep gets worse and worse and like less and less sleep. You start to have panic attacks, usually like probably from lack of sleep and just like sleep deprivation. Um, but then what happens is one day you just cannot sleep anymore, period. You become incapable of sleep and then you die like uh, six months to a year into that. When usually in that last bit, you are hallucinating crazily. A lot of times people like become, especially at later stages, like completely unresponsive. Like they're, they're like, they just cannot activate. Um, and so I know that this is, this is a, um, a ter I remember reading about this and being like, oh my God, this is the most terrifying disease where you just one day you cannot sleep and then you die from lack of sleep. Um, and this is, um, luckily it's something that we can detect with like, like genetic testing. And it's only been really found in a couple of, um, in a couple of families. Um, I know that there was a family in Italy. Um, I think there was a patient in 2001 that had it in America as well, but it's extremely rare. Um, and generally because it is genetic, like you can kind of trace it. And so like, um, if this has not happened to anyone in your family, you're safe, um, statistically speaking. Uh, and so, but I remember learning about it and just being like, oh my God, this is the weirdest, most interesting disease. And this is something that's important. And I think like a lot of times people, I, this kind of a, my ongoing theme here is people underestimate the value of sleep. Like you literally have to sleep to stay alive. Um, but also that you're you work better. Your biology works better when you are getting good sleep. And so if nothing else out of, you know, these last two weeks of the podcast, hopefully you're realizing that sleep is important and that you are prioritizing it. Um, yeah. This is always why, like the last week before an exam, I tell my students, like your goal for this week is not to learn more stuff. It's to just sleep well, get some exercise, eat healthy, like show up on the day of the test in the zone where you are thinking as clearly as you can. Um, because so much of the test is this application of knowledge and critical thinking. And if you are missing sleep, which is very common, um, you're going to be worse at that. So um, maybe this, you know, kind of bring this home, prioritize your sleep, um, make time for sleeping. Um, that's something don't, especially if you are studying for the MCAT, which I'm assuming you are, 
Um, <laughs> that is a a group and an audience that tends to not prioritize sleep like they probably should. Couldn't say it better myself. <laughs>